Hello and welcome to Little Bold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here back reunited with the full crew. I've got Richard Lawson. Hello. David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. Guys, it was such a pleasure to listen to our podcast when I came back from vacation last week and be like, oh, what did I miss? Ah, these, they caught me up on everything. Although after uh, last week's episode came out, uh, the full or uh, a very large part of the Toronto lineup came out um, after many weeks of eyes emoji tweets and keeping things secret. <laughs> um, so we've got a few more titles to discuss in addition to everything you guys got into uh, last week. Um, a little bit more information about the New York Film Festival. Uh, and then you're going to hear the first installment of our Little Goldman Book Club series for August, where we'll be talking about Women Talking, the book by Miriam Taves, and Aaron Vanderhoof, our colleague, will join us for that. And also a programming note on the book club. Uh, we previously announced that the fourth in the series would be Killers of the Flower Moon, but now there is reporting that that movie will not be released until next year. So we'll save that, and we're going to swap it out with White Noise, the Don DeLillo novel, which is in the news today as we record because it will open the New York Film Festival. And it's also been announced as part of the Venice lineup. Um, you guys talked about it last week in the Venice lineup, and um, David, I think you flagged Adam Driver as somebody who feels like he's uh, ready to pop. Uh, does the New York Film Festival opening night slot give us even more faith that White Noise is going to be a big deal? Seems like that's the that's the narrative, right? <laughs> it does remind me of... Uh, when Power of the Dog kept getting these big festival slots, starting with Venice, and then I think it was the centerpiece of New York Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Netflix is being a bit more selective with White Noise. It sounds like it's not hitting Telluride because this is the announced as the North American premiere. Or TIFF. Or TIFF. That's interesting. Is, yeah, that that surprised me because it does feel like TIFF is back to that really central award season meeting ground um, post-Telluride uh, post in Venice. But... You know, you don't have to go there. <laughs> so I guess it's not, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily say too, too much. But um, yeah, I, I think just being the opening film of two of the four major fall festivals is extremely notable. Yeah, that's true. Um, and so that leaves White Noise and Bardo, it seems, as the, the Netflix top dogs for this coming fall. Am I forgetting something? Yeah, th that seems right. And I believe the Venice chief leaked that Bardo is going to tell your eyes. Oh. So... <laughs> <laughs> He he had named a few movies uh, in an interview with Variety, I believe, uh, and that was one of them. Look, if you're going to try and keep your lineup secret and everybody knows all this stuff, like, we can't help you. There's only so far we can help you here. We're just saying what others have said. We don't know any more <laughs> than you do. Um, and then so we had the full or uh, the gala special presentation lineup for a TIFF, which is not everything. I think midnight titles are still to come. Um, some of the more international features, there'll probably be more stuff added. But a good chunk of what will be at TIFF was on there, including some canned stuff that I think uh, those of us who don't go to Cannes look forward to being able to see, like Triangle of Sadness. A lot of titles there and then some uh, newer stuff. Um, Richard, what, what stood out from you on the additional expanded TIFF lineup? Well, you know, you can do some extrapolation 
based on what's a Canadian premiere and what's a North American premiere and what's a world premiere. Obviously, if it's a world premiere, it's premiering at TIFF. But, you know, it looks like Sam Mendes's Empire of Light will be appearing at a Mountain Film Festival before <laughs> TIFF. Um, Women Talking as well, um, which we'll talk about that book and movie later on this episode. You know, Empire of Light is something that, you know, it sounds like a sentimental Sam Mendes kind of thing. I don't know if that 100% is going to work on me, but it's something that I didn't know really existed until, I mean, I guess we talked with Joe about it a little bit, but like, I don't really know anything about it. And I think that's kind of exciting to pretty much be going into something blind uh, when I see it in in Toronto. Um, yeah. So yeah, and you know, look, it's a in Olivia Coleman movie these days, you can't ever count that out as a big part of the season's conversation. Yeah, I think I think I've read the logline for it on this podcast before because Searchlight sent out an email announcing it, and it was like it's about the magic of cinema and history or something like that. It's like, oh wow, okay, that's <laughs> that's Colin Oscar's number right there. Um, Rebecca, can you do the rundown of how we kind of piece all this together of what's going to be at uh, Venice, what's going to be at TIFF, what's going to be at Telluride, which keeps its lineup secret? Um, how do we figure that out? Sure. So when the TIFF lineup comes out. They list each film as a world premiere, a North American premiere, or a Canadian premiere. So we can kind of put this together based on already having the Venice lineup to figure out what's playing at Telluride. So if it's playing at Venice, the film cannot be called an international premiere at Toronto. And if it's also playing at Telluride, it cannot be called a North American premiere. So it has to be called a Canadian premiere. But if it's premiering at Telluride and not Venice, then they can call it international. So when you look at the list, you see, you know, Sam Mendes's film is playing at Toronto, but is not playing at Venice. So it's listed as a Canadian. No, and it's an international premiere. I have a list as Canadian premiere. This one is weirdly listed as a Canadian premiere. I think that it can be interchangeable, though. Like there's also... The Sebastian Lelio movie, yeah. which Netflix is distributing, um, and that is listed as an international premiere. It's not going to Venice, so I think you come to the same conclusion for both of those movies, right? Which is that they will be at Telluride. Yes. So wait, so right, women talking, because women talking is not playing at Venice, so it can right. be called international because it's playing in Canada, but it cannot be called North American because it is playing at Telluride. It's playing in Telluride. Got it. So this is the sort of thing that like. <laughs> We dig into for 30 minutes and everyone and else which, is like, like what are you talking about? doesn't matter because these all premiere within 10 days of each other. Yes. So like Sometimes two days of each other. Like it's really <laughs> yes. a silly it's thing. It's really for our own planning abilities because yeah. we won't find out about Telluride till we literally land there. So yeah. it's um, helpful for us. But it also, I think, you know, reflects the sort of heat on behind some of these films. Yes. You know, the ones that hit as many as possible. And, and you know, we know how selective Telluride can be. And, and so it is interesting, but Lord, don't let me, don't make me explain it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for making that more confusing. <laughs> when you get the films that... um David, we mentioned before that you wrote about for the September issue that go from Venice to Telluride and get a lot of heat. Then in Toronto, like, you get much more press, many more people being like, oh, wow, I heard that The Lost Daughter played really well at both Venice and Telluride. I'm going to line up to see that. It really builds on itself when the films go do all of that jumping from festival to festival. Yes, it does. It seems that it's a route that not as many films are taking this year, which is kind of interesting. I mean, last year, actually, you had a lot of movies skip TIFF just because... Uh, it still wasn't the sort of full Toronto experience that it is known for due to COVID. So 
it feels like that's kind of inverted a little bit where a lot of movies are either skipping Venice or Telluride and going to Toronto. Um, but yeah, it seems like there are a few movies that are, that are making that jump, but not, not all of them. <laughs> um, but in terms of movies that are premiering at TIFF, expectedly you have a lot of the more commercial leaning movies that really could go either way. We've talked about movies like Bros and The Woman King, um, which both, you know, look really exciting based on the trailers that have been released. Uh, but you also have a movie. Hmm? Oh, it was the, the Nicolas Cage Western Butcher's Crossing, which appears to be the source of the horse that he talked about that didn't like him, um, which makes yes. me want to go see it. Um, <laughs> that, Nicolas Cage log lines never disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's that's the commercial one I was looking at that's like could be interesting to discuss, could just be a crowd pleaser. Yeah, and I think you have to look at um, the Peter Farrelly movie. Yes. You know, his last movie won Best Picture, and he's coming After premiering to at TIFF, yeah. Yep, and he's coming to Toronto with uh, the greatest beer run ever. Ever. The greatest beer run ever. ever. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's got a kind of, it's got the kind of storyline that if the movie works for those for whom Peter Fairley movies work, uh, that could go pretty far, I think. And the greatest beer run ever, in addition to a, a kicky title and a director who is fairly hot off an Oscar win, a big Oscar win, um, it's also about the Vietnam War. So it's like it has right. like a bigger component to it. And uh, so I, I think that is definitely one we cannot count out. Um, I would be surprised if Peter Farrelly w- was able to repeat the Green Book success because Green Book just was such a surprise. It came out of nowhere. And now there are actually more eyes on it. And I think that puts more pressure on on, on his follow up. So but I am I think it is very pointedly at Toronto and Toronto only. I don't, you know, it's skipping all that arty Euro shit, you know, the whatever, <laughs> the hippies in the mountains, who who needs them, you know? Not that Toronto is the most like meat and potatoes kind of place, but uh, in terms of the festival offerings, it is definitely the most commercial and accessible. And um, I think, you know, a lot more people go, you know, you can just buy tickets. I mean, they're not cheap, but um, it does not have the barrier to entry that these other festivals do. I do think Zac Efron probably has a, a strong narrative if he is good in that film as well yeah. for an yeah. awards run. So that could be really interesting. And and, 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 and part of a narrative that is going to continue, he, he just uh, was announced he's going to be, I, I think, the lead in Sean Durkin's next film, which is a true story about a very kind of cursed wrestling family. So Efron is on a, an interesting jag right now. Uh, speaking of commercial things and a movie that I feel like I should have known existed, but there's a Paul White's movie with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. He directed Lily Tomlin and Grandma, and obviously they were in Grace and Frankie together forever. Um, I don't, Again, I don't know what the awardsy prospects of that are, but uh, I would look forward to being at that world premiere. So they just film on lunch breaks? Is that, yes. <laughs> is that how it works? <laughs> it's called Moving On, by the way, for anyone trying to look at the lineup. There's another title that we mentioned months ago when Joe Reed was on here kind of previewing the gear, and that's Chevalier. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. It's a period piece, uh, believe historical drama. Um, that's something that could just quietly debut at TIFF and a few people see it to get some notices, but like, because it, it's being sort of, it's small right now. It feels a little bit off of um, a lot of the the sort of predictive radar, let's say, but but sometimes yeah. those movies really do sneak up and 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 make, a, you know, kind of really loudly announce themselves. So I'll be definitely trying to make time to see that um, when I'm in Toronto. I'm also curious about Jennifer Lawrence's film, Causeway. Which, That's a big one. Yeah, I feel like, you know, she plays a, I think, a veteran who's suffering from, like, traumatic brain mm-hmm. injury. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see her deliver a, a really dramatic performance. Um, 
And, and she's in it with uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who's one of right. those people whose Oscar nominations, like, it's not if, it's when. And it's Apple, and they know how. It's A24 and Apple, and Apple has proven that they, they can run a campaign. So, yeah. yeah. I think this one's distinct from, like, the way Macbeth was released last year, where A24 has essentially sold it to Apple, I mm. believe, as opposed to it being a paired release. So I don't know how that changes the equation at all. But, um, yeah, Apple... Apple's slate is very mysterious right now. Because I was just going to ask about that. You mentioned the Killers of the Flower Moon likely push. Um, on the other hand, on the other side of that coin, there have been some rumors of Emancipation, the Will Smith film directed by Antoine Fuqua, actually being released this year and that it's screened very well and to very positive reactions. But we don't really know what they have beyond, yes, the films that have been announced like Causeway, which was a a later pickup for them. I did. I wasn't planning to talk about Emancipation, but like, does a Will Smith big award season movie feel possible this year? To me, it does not. I, I think Emancipation it could be not. good and I, play well, but I, I cannot see that narrative taking hold. No, I don't think so. But it might be why he recently spoke out again about yes. things and issued a more thorough apology to not just Chris Rock, but other people. Maybe sort of my lizard brain is like, but that he's doing that because he's trying to clear the runway for this movie that um, he was, uh, you know, reportedly paid thirty five million dollars to do. I don't think that's a uh, that's a big leap at all. Yeah, I mean, it's completely possible that Apple just can't really sit on the movie for a full year, and they believe in the movie enough. And yeah. uh, the Venice chief said that Killers of the Flower Moon was not close to ready. So in that case... Which feels um, crazy because they were filming that like when the pandemic started or like they were getting right. ready to. That quote did pop, pop up to me. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, but if that is true or if, if the movie is simply not being planned for this year or was not planned for this year for, by Apple, then yeah, they probably do not want to have too much on the back end. We can speculate for a long time, but I, I guess it's possible that movie gets released and is good even, but I just don't see how... In any world, it would take off as a serious awards contender, given everything. Yeah. Speaking of things that may not be finished, I think I'm kind of giving up hope on the Ari Aster movie, uh, Disappointments oh, Boulevard. Oh, that's been your horse. Yeah. I believe that is that is moving, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, obviously, Babylon, the another big one from a youngish, you know, lauded director, Damien Chazelle, that is still scheduled. It has not been announced for any festival yet. But that doesn't mean anything necessarily because a lot of December movies don't go to the festivals uh, in the early fall or late summer. But yeah, the Ari Aster one, I think I'm just going to have to put down that drum and start beating it next year. Yeah, I've got our little spreadsheet that had a lot of uh, possibilities on it that I moved on to a new tab uh, of things that don't seem to be coming out. Uh, that's on there. Uh, the Bayard Rustin biopic, that seems like it's not happening this year. Uh, that would definitely hit a fall festival if it was. I yeah. Think. Uh, Maestro, the Bradley Cooper movie, I think we knew that wasn't coming out because it's still filming. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how once these festival announcements come out, you're like, okay, on to next year. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. You get a lot of information about the future. But I think that, you know, it's probably obvious to anyone listening, but like what's so exciting about this is this abundance. I mean, we just have yes. not had this um, for three years. And um, it's it's a little overwhelming from a boring editorial <laughs> workflow standpoint but like <laughs> i think we have a lot of potentially great things coming and i feel really excited because going to toronto last year when it was a ghost town and there were like six movies and that was super depressing and i think that the whole season last year was really colored by this kind of 
lack of 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 oomph and, and energy and and i'm i'm really already feeling that energy now and uh, it's really fun to try to remember what a canadian premiere means you know <laughs> like uh, i'm i'm happy to be back in this position yeah the amount of world premieres they've got this year is pretty pretty stunning and like big films i mean it's definitely it's definitely back and like if we look back pre-pandemic i mean the films that got first second and third at the toronto film festivals People's Choice Award were always awards contenders, so it yeah, it's definitely even last year they yeah, were. It's definitely worth you know paying attention to, and I'm going to be so jealous of you you three while you're there. Oh, you'll be <laughs> fine. And Toronto did pre- world premiere a Best Actress winner last year, even in that yes, that yeah, year. So, did. and I you know certainly there are many episodes of me saying that would never happen. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, just let's listen back if you want to hear me be wrong. Oh, and I do want to point out, Justine is back with The Good Nurse, yes. uh, a Netflix yeah. film that's going to be at Toronto, and she is the lead and is a pretty powerful drama thriller about a serial killer, and she plays the woman who kind of helps catch him. So, you know, she may be repeating her whole journey once again. We'll see. You can read all about that in the first look piece that you wrote, mm-hmm. Rebecca. Yeah. I had one more question, Mark. Um, the I got a press release, uh, you know, two weeks ago about um, Wes Anderson's movie Asteroid City, and I, you know, a release from Focus saying that they were distributing it. Um, it's not on any of these lineups, and that release didn't say if it was coming out this year. Does anyone have a sense of it if that's actually coming this year, or will it be a spring thing? He tends to like the Berlin slash Cannes corridor. That's what I, I was expect, thinking. I would expect that to continue, especially given. Um, just how crowded, <laughs> to Richard's point, this is already looking. And especially those big starrier movies, you also have Amsterdam from David O. Russell yes. coming at the end of the year. You have the new Avatar. You have the new Black Panther. And those movies are going to take up a lot of that blockbuster end-of-year oxygen, um, which is, I think, why you have movies like The Fablemans and uh, some other bigger movies uh, like Empire of Light launching early, despite being holiday movies, because they kind of need to gin up that conversation before it just gets incredibly, incredibly crowded. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple other things that we still, like, I Want to Dance with Somebody, the uh, Whitney Houston biopic that uh, last I heard was still scheduled for Christmas release. That hasn't shown up anywhere yet. Um, There's A Man Called Otto, a remake of the Swedish movie with Tom Hanks that's scheduled for December. That's not anywhere yet. Uh, And She Said, the movie um, about the Harvey Weinstein reporting for the New York Times is also not on a festival lineup. But other than that, I mean, and then, New yeah, York what kind of forever avatar? <laughs> New York Times. Hmm. There is yeah, yet another fall festival go. with uh, <laughs> that's holding many of its cards. So who knows what's yet to come? So we're very excited now to kick off our August book club series. Truly, if you want to catch up on books that are going to be movies, August is the time to do it because we have all these festival announcements. We really have a pretty clear picture of the movies that are coming out this year to the point that we are uh, switching up the last book in our series, which we'll talk about later. Uh, But we're starting with Women Talking, the book by Miriam Taves that is being adapted into a movie by Sarah Polly, which has been announced in the Toronto Film Festival lineup and uh, Based on some details about how it was announced, we expect might be at uh, another mountain festival also. Um, But we're here to talk about the book because um, the movie is not out yet. Uh, And joining us to talk about it is uh, Aaron Vanderhoof. Again, hello, Aaron. Hey, Katie. It's so nice to be back. I know that you see movies in addition to just reading books. But when it comes to talking about books, I really do just turn to you (laughs) as a default. Yeah, no, I really, I really, really love to read 
I, I do like to read more than I like to watch movies, but I do love <laughs> to read the book first and then watch the movie. Yes. Uh, and you were really insistent on coming on for Women Talking. This is a book that uh, is very dear to you. Do you want to just talk about why? Well, so this book, it came out a couple of years ago, and I remember it just getting these like really universally great reviews. And I have like a sort of fascination with isolated religious communities and like fundamentalism and the way that gender plays into that. And so I picked up this book and I was just like stunned, I think, by, you know, I I think that there is a sense in which people who are illiterate and cannot tell their own stories don't often get the chance. And I think that there's something really stunning about this book. It opens from the very beginning. A man named August is saying, I'm here only because the women, they cannot read and write. So I'm reading and writing the story for them. And what unfolds is just a really, really gripping and scary and just emotionally intense story about women coming to terms with the fact that the people in their community have been sexually assaulting them and gaslighting them about it, essentially. And the women sit down and they say, we have three options. We can do nothing, we can stay and fight, or we have to leave. And I l- kind of love how that encapsulates the the simplicity and yet the like deep complexity of what's facing these women. And so as the title implies, the the novel is women talking. They're, they're talking about this, about the things that have happened to them in a Mennonite community. It's very cloistered and about whether or not they're ready to see if there's anything else in the world and what it means to them to sacrifice their potential salvation for, you know, a more tenable life. And it's based on uh, true events that happen in a Mennonite community in Bolivia, um, which this is kind of a, a work of fiction spun off from that. Uh, and Miriam Taves, as I learned from this New Yorker profile that Aaron, you sent me, that everyone should read if they want to know more, uh, grew up in the Mennonite uh, faith in Canada. And so she has very close ties to this world. And you can imagine how the story really resonated with her when it when it came out in the news in the early 2010s. Yeah. And it's one of the things that, you know, is documented really beautifully by Alexander Schwartz, who's like one of the best book writers out there, is that Miriam has spent her entire adult life, even after she left the church, her family had one foot in, one foot out. And, you know, learning to kind of have compassion for people who are making, you know, very different decisions and sometimes even very bad decisions is like at the core of a lot of her work. And I think it comes through just really wonderfully in this novel. David, you had read it before we were doing this book club as well, right? Yeah, I read it when it came out, and I feel the same way as, as Aaron. I, I love the book, and um, reading back uh, for this book club, I, I was particularly reminded of how funny it is, um, which mm-hmm. is not something you would associate with the subject, the title, um, or really just have any expectation of of that kind of style. But um, the, the power of the book is the way that Taves groups these women and allows for just a, such a thorough, holistic, complicated conversation. And out of that, you get some really profound moments, you get some really mundane moments, and then you get some really funny interactions too. And there's just a perfect balance of of those elements uh, that feel extremely true to life and extremely true to these characters that she's brought to life. Yeah, it's challenging to read. I was kind of reading it on a very busy vacation surrounded by people, and I kept having to turn to it being like, okay, which one's which? Which name is who? Because you just get a list of the characters at the front of the book of, like, who's related to who. But there's not, like, a physical description of anybody. And it's all in this one hayloft where they've gathered. So all you are getting of them is what they are saying to each other. So it takes a, a while, I think, to get your hooks into who's who. But as you read the book, they just come alive so much so that by the time you get to the end of it, you really get 
each of them and where they're coming to this conversation from. It's so powerful in it, when it builds in that way. Yeah, there are these character revelations for Select Few especially that, to your point, Katie, really open the whole book up because you you are kind of in this, it's almost like a Socratic dialogue. And I know a couple of critics had written that as well when the book came out. And there's also some like 12 Angry Men in there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of interesting cultural touchstones that are kind of refracted uh, in, in this telling. And it's interesting the way you feel like you're settling in for this extremely intellectualized novel, and then these really poignant character moments burst off the page, and it, it, it's extremely moving in those moments. And it also makes it a character novel more than you might expect. Yeah. Richard, did you, like me, read this for the first time for this? I did, yeah. I had read some rave reviews of the book when it came out, but hadn't read it until now, and I'm really glad I did. It's really striking to read a zeitgeisty, buzzy novel that is, in essence, kind of a philosophical text, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it is it is women talking about, like, how to live, how to forgive, how to not forgive, how to hold anger, how to let go of anger. You know, it, it's it's such a, a dense and, and sort of, I mean, obviously talky kind of work that it, it feels like a sort of Plato kind of, you know, dialogue, Socratic right. kind of thing. Like, it's so elevated in its, you know, intellectual ambition. I, I, I do wonder, like, how that translates into a movie. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I could see this as a play, something really kind of meaty that you'd go see at Lincoln Center or something. And and you can certainly do that kind of dialogue-heavy thing in film. But I trust Sarah Pauly uh, more than a lot of other directors to handle the material carefully. I think the biggest thing about the book that I found striking, at least on initial, you know, kind of entry into this world, is that we start after these events. We don't see them depicted. We don't really even hear much about it, them. It's referred to, but it's not, you know, there's no real explicit detail per se. And I think that's a very deliberate choice. And um, I and every I, detail is like devastating. Like every time she gives you a tiny detail, you're, you're just like sick. The, the woman's again. teeth or, you know, whatever. Like there's so much stuff that's, that's brutal about it. But like, I, and I trust that Polly will honor Tave's intent there and not show us because that would seem to if she if it, if they do it seem would seem to almost violate the book's mission but i don't know maybe there's a maybe there is a sensitive way to do it cinematically but yeah i think it's it's a tricky adaptation certainly but polly has proven herself in the past to be a very thoughtful adapter so i have i have high hopes for the film yeah aaron what do you know about sarah polly's work cuz you know i know you are a fan of the book and i think the rest of us are really big fans of her have you seen a lot of her work before Yes, I'm a huge fan. Uh, in fact, I feel like uh, Stories We Tell is a book, as a movie that I rewatch probably at least every other year or so because wow. I think it is just such. She, I, I definitely can understand why she would be interested in in picking the story specifically because I do think that that sense of how children live with the decisions that their parents have made in the past is something that like mm. comes up like it's very recurring. Um, you know, how do you understand somebody as a product of their times? So another recurring theme of her work. And so I just, I think that she's like, just such like, you know, like the great, in my, in my mind, the great Canadian novelist and the great Canadian filmmaker coming together for, <laughs> yeah, for, for something that I think it really brings out the best in both of them. Or I hope, I haven't seen it yet, but <laughs> as I hope, I hope it will. I, I do kind of wish we could see the movie in, what is it, Plaut Deutsch? The Mennonite language, because I think there is something so essential about that they're speaking very much in their own voices. I mean, I think that would be completely impossible, probably, to do. But 
certainly they've assembled a lot of good actors to do it uh, in English, presumably. Yeah, do you um, want to give the rundown of, of who else on the cast? Yeah, so we've got Jesse Buckley, we've got Rooney Mara, we've got Claire Foy, we've got Frances McDormand, the great British actress Sheila McCarthy, uh, or no, sorry, not British, I think she's American, um, Canadian rather, um, Judith Ivey. And then as August, this the Mennonite guy who has left the community for a bit and learned English and and has come back, who's translating for them. That's how we read the story is through his translation um, and, doc, you know, keeping the minutes of these meetings um, is Ben Wishaw. So I think that's a, a good choice. Ben Wishaw has a sort of gentle observing air about him. Um, I think people who are not familiar with the book will probably be like, why are we hearing this through the lens of this man? But it serves a real purpose in, in the novel. I'm really going to struggle not to think of Paddington, though. That's my. <laughs> well, you he know. is going to be wearing the hat and the jacket. That's, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, saw that's a production true. still, and you know. <laughs> I do think that's an, ad- an adaptation challenge, though, because it is a movie about. It's a book about women, women talking, uh, narrated by a man. It's from August's point of view, um, and I think the book handles that really well. Like even the fact that he's got this like longstanding uh, crush on Ona, who's one of the women in the loft. Like it's not. It is an important part of the story, but it's not what the story is about. Um, and I think that's a tricky thing to have a male character as a point of view character in this story. But I think Sarah Polly is the person I trust to figure that out. I think it does a really, I think that they're, you know, to kind of bring this back into the way that gender roles function in a, you know, fundamentalist religious community. I think that there is something really powerful about about making putting it in such a situation where it's like these these women have been denied a lot of ability to claim their own freedom and it, by i think watching somebody who does have a better like understanding of the outside world interpret the way that they're communicating with each other i think that well i think one of the things that i was left with when i read the book is just this thought of like the way that language and the way that experience really mediates our understanding of the things that are happening to us and that i think that there's a sense that that august knows exactly what's really happening to the women in a way that even they are not totally sure of but like Hmm. throughout the course of that like they they are more understanding of it in the end. And I think that you do kind of need an outsider. Like to, it would be, I feel like in certain ways, it would be almost dishonest to not understand the way that these women have had their lives mediated by men from the very beginning. And that mm-hmm. in order to tell an honest version of their story, you have to at least acknowledge that. But I think by making a kind of a character who feels complicated in his masculinity and, you know, even feels a little weird or resentful about being, you know, left behind, but also didn't actually want to go with the rest of the men either. You know, I think that that kind of pulls at that, at that gender divide really fascinatingly. And even, even though he is something of a pariah in the community to some extent, you know, had been kind of cast out and then brought back on on very strict terms, he still was able to go and come back and had those privileges. And I think through him, you really see how isolated these women are because they speak a language that's hundreds of years old and only only Mennonites speak it. So it's not like they could go to some city where there's a an enclave, you know, or whatever, like they are really alone. And I think that August, who also feels kind of isolated and alone, but he he has much more agency than do the people he's observing. And this is why Ben Wishaw is the exact person to play this role. Like, I had not, I didn't look up the cast list before I was reading the book, and I was kind of reading along, and I looked up, I was like, oh, God, of course. Like, 
it, it has to be Ben Wishaw. It cannot possibly be anybody else. Yeah, if it was like Joel Edgerton, I'd be like, nope, I, I don't want, I don't want that energy. You know, okay, Andrew Andrew him. Garfield couldn't. Andrew Garfield has already has already played a similar character. That's true. Under the banner of heaven, we can't. We can't. Well, that's. I mean, if anything, that's why I was. I have been thinking about this book a lot recently because of Under the Banner of Heaven really got me back into thinking about that what people believe is such a complicated thing to deal with in film and in television. And I, I, I'm really hoping that I felt like this book is one of the, one of the best books that I've ever like read about apocalyptic and like, you know, severe spiritual belief without necessarily like judging it or trying to disprove it, but without Mm -hmm. soft peddling the really negative impact it's had on you know i think i think that's like one of the things that's so stunning to me about it is like what what is your experience of the world when you grow, grow up in a community where you've been horribly assaulted and it feels natural that the answer that people give you is you've been punished for your sins by a demon yeah and that they're so committed to their faith still. Like, they're not willing to leave it behind. They're like, we cannot be good Mennonites if we want vengeance against these men. And they're and because we want vengeance, we have to leave. Like, their decision to leave is based in the continuation of their faith. They're not, they're not wavering on that. Yeah. That's my favorite part of the book is the way you see each of these characters at various points at the beginning of the novel, just through these discussions, come to a new understanding of their faith and how it can carry them forward. Because that's really the great debate uh, as the novel starts is we can't leave and be faithful. Like that doesn't square with what we know of our entire lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's also interesting because this book was pub- when this book was published, it was pretty extensively covered in the context of me too, just given yeah. the timing. It came out in like early 2018. Right. Um, but also I, I think because there is such a, such a moving and convincing depiction of the way these kinds of mass community traumas can be unpacked and wrestled with and argued over where it's not simple and that you can find your way toward not just a state of hope, but a new state of understanding through a community. And I think that that's one of the really beautiful parts of the book that does still have that resonance in that in that you know more contemporary cultural context for us it, it definitely i can see why it resonated then and I, I remember just unavoidably reading it in that kind of haze uh given that's what all the sort of pre-publication <laughs> marketing was about and it was definitely targeted in that direction um but i think now that we have a little bit more distance from that it still holds up in that regard in a really interesting way as a as a text that i hope will be Remember, it is something that really powerfully, not necessarily intentionally, responded to that moment. Yeah, it's about a total paradigm shift and about whether yep. you have to shed past perspective in order to allow for an, a new understanding of something that has been happening, has been systematic, you know. And that, I think, can apply to certainly me, too. That was the timing of when the book came out. But it it applies to so much, I think, that's happening in like civic life right now people of faith having being like, how do I reconcile X with Y? How do you know, and people are not of faith that, you know, various other ways, like political shifts in consciousness or moral shifts in consciousness. And and I think that while Taves is telling a specific story about a specific thing that happened in a specific community, um, and I'm always a little reluctant to sort of extrapolate universality out of that. 
I think you can. I think it is there. Um, there's something eerily reflective about these women debating not just what to do with this situation, but sort of how to be in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a conversation that I think a lot of people are having in this country and others. It was really interesting to read right after She Said, which we'll be doing later in this book club, which is also being adapted into a movie. Um, it's the book by Jody Cantor and Megan um, Twoey about uh, the Harvey Weinstein reporting and about the women that they talked to wanting to band together, about wanting the solidarity uh, of speaking together and, and the paradigm shift that you're talking about, Richard. They really do um, speak to each other and th- their titles are remarkably similar. So maybe it makes sense. <laughs> they really are similar. I didn't think <laughs> I, to your earlier point, Katie, about this being a book that you bring on vacation, and it is one that can be hard to really focus on. Um, but I also think the real merit of the book is it does the work, uh, mm. to Richard's point about where it leaves you and what it shows is it doesn't take any shortcuts in showing how that paradigm shift can happen and how that this particular group of people, because they are a particular group of people, can come together. Um, but what kinds of in- implications that can have beyond them, it's not a book that sells a fantasy of what that could look like. It's it's very meaty and very rooted in complicated feelings and ideas and disagreements. There's a character, in this, a small character in the book who I think would be more the focus of the conversation if the book came out now, who is referred to as Nettie but wants to be called Melvin, uh, who is effectively a trans character in this community where, like, that language doesn't seem to exist. Um, and in as, like, feminist debate and turfism and all this other stuff kind of rolls around it, it was such a simple way of showing solidarity and people who are oppressed by a patriarchal society. And I just, I really hope that element continues in the movie. I think it could be more of a topic of conversation. There is someone credited as Melvin in the cast. So I don't know if that character stuck out to you guys as much in the in the modern context of the trans debate specifically. Well, if not necessarily in the modern context of the, the trans debate so much as I think that Nettie does function as I think a really interesting way of remembering that like a lot of, even in situations where you try to isolate you people from solidarity or from knowledge that queer people exist, there is still like a yearning to to find that. And I think that that like, I mean, if anything, I think one of the things that this book always makes me think of is the sort of, you know, I grew up going to church a lot. And one of the the parables that like a, a pastor that I went to church with, like loved is the one about like, the drowning man during a hurricane and God asking, you know, like, oh, why didn't you, why didn't you save me? And it's like, well, I did send all of these people to save yeah. you. And you, you said, no, like, I'll wait for God. And I think that one of the things that I like love about this book is like so many different ways of people trying to find the the small outlets or the ways that they can be saved in the limited circumstances that they have. They have. Mm-hmm. And that is what I, that is why I love Melvin. Yeah, and finding self-determination, um, yeah. and, and it, it, it comes in very different forms for all these characters. Uh, the other Sarah Polly project I thought about reading this, I think is less seen, is her adaptation of Alias Grace, the Margaret Atwood uh, novel that was a Netflix series, and mm-hmm. kind of one of those Netflix series that, like, it was there, and who knows who <laughs> talked about it, but I got to interview her for it, which I was delighted by. Um, and uh, it's really good, and I think a, a good also study of women in a repressive situation kind of finding their own identity and their ways to um, to self-determine. Um, so I think that's worth watching if you want to do some like hardcore Sarah Polly prep for, for women talking. It's a great show. Yeah. Uh, do we know when women talking? We were talking about its festival premieres. It's going to be in Toronto. Do we know when it's coming out? December is it's wide or is wide of release. It's going to be, I think, in early December. 
So people have some time to prepare. Um, the book, I mean, once you get into it, I do think the book is a pretty quick read. And, like, I don't know if you should read the book before you see the movie. Like, obviously, you want them to stand on their own. But I think it will raise, I think it will make you excited for the movie and raise a lot of questions um, and kind of get you in the right headspace for it at the very least. Yeah, ironically, I also read it on vacation, but I was like, I was in upstate New York because like, you know, not a not a beach. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that there is something really I like I just once I opened it up, I couldn't put it down because it is just so gripping. And it, I feel like it, it I think there are a lot of questions that we all are trying to answer all of the time, usually pretty isolated or solitary. They're very personal questions, but to see a lot of people being forced to come up with language to answer those questions for themselves for the first time is just always really beautiful. Yeah, so everyone go get uh, Women Talking and be prepared. And um, Perrin, please come back and talk books with us soon. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back next week, hopefully with even more fun festival stuff to discuss, because as Richard said, the abundance of riches, it's so fun to talk about. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. You can also text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-4203. Uh, we did get a text from a listener asking for the uh, how we figure out and read the tea leaves what will be at Telluride in Toronto. So your questions are read and are very helpful to us. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for how I will feel when I don't get into the world premiere screening at TIFF of The Fablemans goes to Aaron Vanderhoof. You've been punished for your sins by a demon. 